So last week we talked about the the egalitarian, or the complementarian position, which is this, and I'll get more into it today. We're, today we're going to talk about the egalitarian position, though. How do people um, get there from the Bible? So we're going to do four things this morning. I'm going to recap the complementarian position and give a few fee- uh, pushbacks to that uh, from a more egalitarian side. And then we're going to do some ground clearing, like we did last week. Then we're going to say, what do egalitarians believe? And then finally, some applications for us. So that's where we're going uh, this morning. So to recap what the complementarian position is, uh, there's a guy I'm going to quote named Sam Storms. He's a, uh, here's a, it's a great quote, I think, that, that kind of encapsulates what the complementarian position is. He says, men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons, possessing the same moral dignity and value and having equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry, in service to the body of Christ, and through teaching in ways that are consistent with the word of God. And so I hope that all of us would agree so far that this is... We're all in agreement. And like I said, there's complementarians and egalitarians. Even though they have differing perspectives, they share a lot. And this is what we share together. So now he continues and, and kind of focuses on what the complementarian position would say. This principle of male headship, this idea that men are to be in leadership positions, should not be confused with or give any hint of domineering control. Rather, it's to be the loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind of gentle authority of Jesus Christ. The elders and pastors of each local church have been granted authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight and to teach and preach the word of God in corporate assembly for the building up of the body. The office of elder or pastor is restricted to men. This is a very good and concise and clear statement by a real complementarian, um, if you're wondering. Um, but it's two ideas. So first is that the Bible teaches this idea of male headship that is clear throughout the Bible. And like I said last week, there's three parts to it. That men uh, have responsibility, that they are to represent, and to be servant leaders in the community. Those three things are important, and they're, they're shown in the person, most clearly, in the person of Jesus. When he comes, he doesn't come as a woman. He comes as a man. And he does those three things. That he takes responsibility for the sin of his people, that he represents them to God, and then he lives a life of sacrificial service. Uh, for us and servant leadership. And in many ways, the complementarian argument uh, comes down to two passages which we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. And you might say, well, there's only two passages. And of course there aren't. That's a whole story, and we're just doing a flyover. And like I said, there's lots of resources I can recommend to you if you want to dig into this stuff further. But, but complementarians in general, from my reading, would say this, that most these two passages, they fit into the whole pattern of what we see in Scripture, which is this idea of male headship. And these passages, these two specific passages, are clear, they're explicit, They're linked to the pre-fall narrative, which means in the story of the Bible, they happen before sin enters the picture, and they come after Jesus. And so all of those things are very, very important to the argument. I can't emphasize how important they are. So a complementarian might say, based on all of this, it's just obvious. It's obvious in these passages, it's clear, it's explicit, and it happens after Jesus is resurrected. So it's supposed to be for the church. And so I don't have to like it, you don't have to like it. But it's just the way it is. And so as Sam Storm says, let's be consistent with the word of God and come under the gentle authority of Jesus. Now, I want to do a bit of ground clearing, and I want to be very clear about my ground clearing, that it is not, I'm not trying to make a, a 
uh, argument for the egalitarian position yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to clear the ground to understand how someone could even take that position of being an egalitarian, given what the complementarians have said. So here's four of my responses to kind of that idea that complementarians will put forward. First is this. It's not actually obvious. It's not obvious. Let me just give you one example. So 1 Timothy 2.12, we'll focus on that one. And you can ask questions about the other passages if you want next week. So next week, our Q&R will be about this issue. So if you have questions, feel free to come, and I'll try to give a response. 1 Timothy 2.12, it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So it's very straightforward. It's like almost abrasively clear. Okay? But in my brief, and I mean very, very brief study of the, the Greek on this, on the original languages, and I am by no means a Greek expert. People do PhDs on, like, single verbs here. There are at least four words that are quite contested in the original language. And they are these words. Do not, which is uk ode. Allow, which is the Greek word epitrepo. To teach, didaskin. And then finally, to have authority, which is the word authentane. So you can see, it's like almost all the words. Uh, they're actually quite contested in the original language. Like, what do they mean? And basically, this is what happens. So complementarians would go to the passage, and they'd, say, they, they'd look at the Greek, and they'd say, see, it's obvious. This is what, for example, authority means. And then a, an egalitarian will go, and they'll be like, no, 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 it's not what it means. It supports an egalitarian position. And then so what they do is they go to the next set of sources, which is either other places in the Bible, or a third set of sources, which is just other things that have been written at that time period that use these same words. And complementarians will say, see, look at this passage in Tertullian. Can't you tell? It's obvious that they're talking about complementarian position. And then egalitarians will say, I don't think so. And also look at these other four passages. It obviously supports egalitarian theology. And this is basically what happens back and forth. And a person that I really admire, his name is Preston Sprinkle. Sorry, Preston Sprinkle. And uh, he um, almost said it like at a sprinkle stuck in my throat. Um, he, he's someone I admire quite a bit. And he's on a three-year journey. He's, a, he's got his PhD. He's a very smart guy. He's on a three-year journey to figure out the same thing we're talking about, which is he's studying this in a very deep way for three years. And this is what he says about his research on this passage. He says, sometimes I think complementarians won that one. And sometimes I think egalitarians got it right. But my one big takeaway is that this passage is complex. And the meaning does not just leap off the pages. And I would recommend that the strength of your conviction should match the depth of your research. Which doesn't mean that you need to spend months and months studying this passage like he has. But that we should hold our convictions on this passage humbly and with openness to being corrected. It's actually not as clear as it might look on first blush for us when reading in English. The second is that we're all picking and choosing what to take literally and what to interpret figuratively. So one of the things that complementarians will say is that, you know, it's just obvious, and egalitarians are basically just don't want to take this part seriously, and so they're dancing around it. They're not taking it seriously, they're taking it figuratively. And I think if you're an egalitarian here, you have to hear that and say that's possible. That's why we talked about our stories. That you can, as I said, I do last week, I don't like this. I don't like these passages. When uh, our daughter was quite young, she, she would just say, if we gave her something that she didn't like, she would just say, I know yike! And she'd just like yell it for whatever. And so you can just say that about this passage. I know yike! That's good to know if that's you, okay? And so you have to take that seriously. Maybe it is you. But the other thing is, if we zoom out a little bit from these passages, we'll also see that there's things that everybody is taking figuratively. So... Once again, let me read the passage just to make you uncomfortable once again. 1 Timothy 2. It says, A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. 
I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Again, very clear, very explicit. But let's look at the passages before and after, just right before. Therefore, I want the men in every place, every place, that would include, I would imagine, here, right? To pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So, I like it, Joel. I saw Gareth praying earlier, and I think I saw a lot of sinning going on in here. Men not lifting up their holy hands. So why don't we take this literally? And you might be like, well, that's, you know, that's obviously just contextual. Why? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Verse 15, just after this passage. But she will be saved through childbearing. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue with faith, love, holiness, and good sense. Now, I'm not a woman, uh, but maybe, I mean, maybe this has happened to you, but ladies, I'll just ask you, have you ever been part of a church where you're doing a membership thing and they say to you, look, we're excited, you follow Jesus, you love him, you've given up lots, you're baptized, but have you had children? It's like, we're not really sure if you're quite saved, uh, and if you want to, maybe you should have a child. Has anyone ever mentioned that to you? And of course, we're going to say no, like that's bizarre, but why is it bizarre? We would say it's contextual, but why is it contextual? Why would we take this one not literally and then the rest of it literally? And so I'm not trying to say that uh, complementarians are wrong here and egalitarians are right. What I'm trying to say is that all of us take parts literally and parts figuratively. That's that's what it means to interpret the Bible and be part of the community that takes the scripture seriously 2,000 years later. And so maybe what we need to do is not throw stones at each other, but to say all of us are doing this. And we need to take our stories very seriously about why we would do that. And then come to each other, come to the scriptures, and, and say, you know, I have blind spots. Would you help me? Would you help me be a person who follows Jesus? And all of us should do that very humbly, as Preston Sprinkle says. Number three, these passages have context behind them which likely does not mirror our context and may help explain Paul's commands. Again, this is a massive area of research And I'm just doing a quick flyover, but let's stay in this passage and and let me try to give you one example. So uh, 1 Timothy is written to uh, Timothy, who is leading this church in a place called Ephesus. And uh, something of a sexual revolution was happening at the time. Uh, There there are women who were reading Ovid, and they were were making massive changes in their lives. Um, And they were doing these things. They were flaunting their wealth rather than than, living in a more pious way. They were flaunting their wealth. They were engaging in sexual promiscuity, sometimes very, very publicly. They were refusing to become mothers because they were saying like that, I'm not going to have some things happen to my body that might destroy my body and how I look. And then finally, they were domineering and dominating their husbands. These four things, which is why I never encourage women to read Ovid. If you know one thing about me, that's the truth. Okay? So they gave this name to these women called New Roman Women, which is like... This is like how I name my Google Docs. This looks like the most obvious thing. I just feel like someone was like, well, we had these old Roman women. What should we name these new ones? And then some grad students like, give me two months. I'll come up with a great name. Um, new Roman women. Okay. Grad jokes. Uh, grad student jokes. Let's cross the rest of those out for the, uh, the time that we have here. But the point is to say that this is what's going on. And these women were doing this in this culture. And there was a concern in the, in the wider Roman culture about these women because they were not living in line with Roman virtue and values. And specifically, there was one virtue that they talked about, this word right here in Greek, sophrosunes. Sophrosunes, which we sometimes translate as something like self-control. They were not living in a self-controlled way. 
And so what do we see Paul say in these passages? Women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency, lining right up with what we would see the new Roman women doing, and sophrosunes, act in ways that show self-control. At the very end, she will be saved through childbearing. Again, if the new Roman women didn't want to have kids, who saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with what? Sophrosunes. And so Paul, some people would say, because of the context, when we take it seriously and know it, Paul is speaking to very specific women in this specific case. And maybe not all women everywhere. And so, uh, and, they're, and they're displaying a kind of authority that would be, it would be inappropriate for anyone to take. Not just women, but anyone, man or woman. So the context is really important, and there's loads of research in that area. Number four, and the final one, Paul's rooting male headship in Genesis 2 doesn't mean that it's applicable for everyone, everywhere, at all times. So again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, women need to submit and learn quietly, and he says this is because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he's referencing Genesis 2, the second chapter in the Bible. And it's one of the creation narratives. And if you know that story, it's man is created first, and then there's a garden, and then God creates everything else, and then finally... Eve is created, out of man. And so Paul is referencing this idea that was uh, prevalent in almost all traditional cultures, but in that culture specifically, and it's an it's a idea called primogeniture, which means first birth. And it means very specifically that the first birthed son, usually it's almost always the son, is the one who is the most important in the family, the one who's honored, the one who is the leader of the next generation, and the one, most importantly, who gets that money. Am I right? Gets usually a bigger inheritance than everybody else. And if you come from an Asian culture, this is still practiced today in many Asian cultures. It's not that. It's not like some ancient history. This still happens today in lots of traditional cultures. And so this seems pretty locked down because, again, Paul is referencing something previous to the fall. But something that I always really liked that the Bible did is they had a Genesis 1. And so there's a, a section, a passage before Genesis 2, which is also a creation narrative. And what we see actually is a very different order of things. God creates, in the first three days, he creates spaces, and then the next three days, he fills these spaces. And on the last day, almost, it's in the, in the structure of the, the passage, actually, it's almost like an overthought. Or you're just like, oh, I almost forgot to do it. God creates these things called humans. And so if we take the same logic, the logic of the passage, what should humans be? They're created on the last day. They shouldn't have any leadership. In fact, they should be under everything else that's created on the first six days. But what does God say to them on day six? Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that fall or crawl on the earth. So even though they're created last, he gives them leadership over everything. And this very important passage comes next. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. Very interesting passage. So it seems from the first two chapters of the Bible that just because something or someone is created second, it doesn't mean that they're actually lower. It doesn't mean that they're inherently the firstborn is going to have leadership over the secondborn. And in fact, this is a story that continues on throughout the Bible, Cain and Abel, all the way leading up to Jesus, who says what? The first will be last, and the last will be First, this reversal, this pattern continues on into the person of Jesus. And we'll look at that a lot more next week. But to summarize this passage, or this, this point, let me uh, quote John Stackhouse, who I'll remind you. He's an egalitarian, but he's a feisty one. 
I do not see a single upward line that would make Jesus and Paul virtual egalitarians. Instead, what I see is a double message, almost from the verge of egalitarian text, but one that contains numerous instances of these two messages often side by side. And we should have been prepared for that when we see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 side by side with each other, saying different things. And it may invite us to something that we are very uncomfortable with as Western people, which is that maybe the Bible is not here to be boiled down for us to one point or another, that we're on the right side or the wrong side on this specific issue but rather an invitation to do what we're doing, which is discern. In this doubleness, how do we discern the Holy Spirit and discern how we're supposed to walk? So um, let's, let's continue on with some more ground clearing. So that helps us to understand why these passages, it's not that we have to dance around them, but why egalitarians might have a different perspective on them than complementarians do. So let's do two more pieces of ground clearing here. First is this. I'm not in inviting anyone necessarily to change their mind. So if you're a complementarian here today, I'll say the same thing I said to egalitarians last week. I'm not asking you to change your mind. And I'm actually very, very glad that you're here. And regardless of what we discern as a church, wherever we end up in this process, I, I hope that you will find a place here. And, and I know there will be people who lean complementarian and people who lean egalitarian. And in fact, I think that that's a feature and, and not a bug. That that is a way that the family of God is united together when we come not, against our, not with our perspectives as the primary thing, but with Jesus. We say he is the key, he is the person that we, we surround ourselves, we, or we surround, and we put him in the center. And so we're very glad that you're here, and, and I'm not asking you to change your mind. So again, as I said last week, why would we go through this process then? It's to help us to be centered, it's to help us wrestle with God's story, and it's to honor our brothers and sisters, both here and around the world, who are egalitarians, and try to speak the best of them. And that's the last thing for the ground clearing that I want to say. I'm only going to speak the best of the best egalitarian arguments and ideas. There are some pretty poor ones. And uh, let me just quote again John Stackhouse, who is, let me remind you, he's an egalitarian. He says this, It's deficient theology, therefore, that halts all deliberation with mere proof texting, which is the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And we talked about this in the first sermon, the strident biblicism. And complementarians generally are more guilty of that. But he continues, so this is deficient theology when we just appeal to current social practice, which says something like this, women lead businesses, universities, and governments. It's just ridiculous not to have them lead churches. Or with claims to personal intuition, which is, I just feel led to pastoral leadership. Or with any other shortcut. And it's disturbing how many churchgoers are content to settle for such simplistic methods that are so clearly vulnerable to manipulation by one's own or other's interests. This is so important for us to hear if you are a person who leans egalitarian here today. He is pointing out something that's so important for us to hear in our context, in our time, and in our place. Because these winds are blowing so hard on us. That in, in our world, it's true, women lead our CEOs and lead universities. And we can celebrate that, whether you're a complementarian or an egalitarian. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that is the way that God is to lead the church. 
And the same thing with personal intuition. Again, we, we invite you to bring your stories. That's what we spent the first weeks doing and in our community groups we're doing. It's not to say they're not important, but that is, as he says, deficient theology to understand what God may be saying to us through the scriptures. So bring your stories, bring our culture, but be aware of it. Finally, I'll say this, uh, another bad reason for being egalitarian. So I showed this, uh, this um, diagram last time. So what I said is that what we often see, this is not the C of E, the Church of England, by the way, um, but it's like complementarians on one side, egalitarians on, on another side, that they almost share nothing in common. But the reality actually is something more like this, that they're, they're closer together than we might think, and they share a lot in common, and we can even see that from the Sam Storms comments. But what happens, especially with complementarians, is that uh, people say, oh, complementarians and misogynists, which is just people that hate women, those are the same group of people. Um, and what I tried to say last week is this, that what we have, there are, there are some complementarians who are misogynist. That's just true. And it's very unfortunate. And we have no space for that here, regardless of where we end up. Um, but they're not all misogynists. But here's what I want to say to you if you lean egalitarian. Is there's, there's another bubble on your side, too. And what I find is that egalitarians have no clue who those people are, which just means it's very, very dangerous. Because they have no idea where, oh, what, what, a, what does a bad egalitarian look like? Why would people have bad reasons for being egalitarian? And if that's true, and I think that it is, then it might just mean that you've drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit too much in that group. If you can't identify, and this is true of any group, if you can't identify that there are bad players bad agents in your group, then you may have just sunk your teeth in a little bit too deep. And so this would be a great conversation for you in your community groups. Who, who might that group of people be? And I'm not going to give away my answer until next week. You can ask me at the Q&A. Okay, so what do egalitarians believe? Once again, I've succeeded at just taking just warm-up strokes on the before I actually take a drive here. Uh, Okay, what do egalitarians believe? So here we go. All levels of leadership in the church are open to both qualified men and women because... Dot, dot, dot. There's loads of becauses. And I would say this in my understanding and reading, is that if egalitarians really... Or complementarians really focus on those two scriptures as a pattern, uh, application of a pattern of biblical uh, teaching of male headship, uh, or egalitarians... They, they have lots of becauses because they're taking various themes throughout the Bible and weaving them. So there's loads of them. And, and you can, again, ask me after the, the gathering or do some reading on your own uh, about what those themes are. But I'm just going to give you three for the sake of time and three that I think are probably the strongest. So the first is this, that patriarchy, which is the way that uh, egalitarians would talk about male headship. So complementarians would say male headship. Egalitarians in general would use the word patriarchy. And patriarchy, according to the historian Judith Bennett, means a general system through which women have been and are subordinated to men. A general system through which women have been and are subordinated to men. So anywhere that that's true. Patriarchy is part of the curse of the fall and not the original design of God. So, again, the story, we have Genesis 1, Genesis 2. They talk about this time where human beings are in this great relationship with God and the world. There's not sin in the world. And, and the human beings are also underneath God, reflecting him as his image bearers. But in Genesis 3, we see a reversal, that the people try to, take, uh, to become gods themselves. And this has disastrous consequences, unleashing sin into the world. But it also releases these curses that God speaks and here's what he says that's very specific to what we're talking about. In Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, I, uh, in, I will intensify your labor pains, and you will bear children with painful effort. Again, remember what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 2. Something to do with childbirth. 
Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So egalitarians would say that pre-fall, in Genesis 1 and 2, there was an egalitarian existence. Men and women were working equally together. It's only as part of the fall, as per this verse, that we see men taking leadership, patriarchy happening. It's a part of the curse and not part of the original design of God. And now, through Jesus, who is the one who has lifted the curse, through his life, death, and resurrection, we now can re, uh, through, through Jesus, we can be part of an egalitarian situation again, where men are not, there's not patriarchy here. Because Jesus has reversed the curse. And so we're able to now come and lead together as we were designed to do in Genesis 1 and 2, that we receive the blessing of God together, and through our partnership with each other and our partnership with him, we're able to bless the world. So, this is important. Patriarchy is part of the curse and not the original design of God. Number two, there are examples of female leadership in the Bible that are evidence for egalitarianism. There's loads, again, just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you three that I think are probably the strongest or most important. The first is a woman named Deborah. She's from the Old Testament, and she was a judge. Here's what it says about her. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth. Great name if you're having a baby anytime soon. There's a biblical name for you. Uh, Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. Loads written about this. Again, ask me next week. It's taking everything in me not to just drill into some fun little juicy academic details. But, but basically what we see here is a woman acting as an elder. She's doing the job of what an elder would do in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's encouraged. It's, she's spoken well of. Number two, Priscilla. Priscilla is a, a woman in the New Testament after Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended. There's a Jew named Apollos. This is this guy. He's a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, and he arrived in Ephesus. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only about John's baptism. Very important for us to see Apollos is a man, number one. Number two, he is someone who's already been trained in the scriptures, and he's preaching and teaching. That's his job, okay? He's going and preaching and teaching. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but after Priscilla and Aquila, this is a husband and wife, most people think, heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So what we see is two important things here. First, Priscilla, the wife, is listed before the husband. Some theologians think that has significance, others don't. But regardless, a woman and her husband are coming and teaching this guy. A woman having authority and teaching a man. Once again, this is not spoken poorly of. It is just mentioned as part of what God's doing. Woman having authority over a man. Number three, Phoebe. Phoebe is, in uh, Romans 16, mentioned as the letter-bearer to the Romans. Now, for us, this means absolutely nothing. We're like, great, she works for Roman Post or whatever, UP, UPR. I don't know what the, the acronym would be, okay? But uh, in that time in history, being the letter-bearer was a much more important thing. And she's the letter-bearer not of just any letter, but of what many complementarians would say is the most important letter, the Magna Carta of Paul, which is the letter to the Romans. And this woman, Phoebe, who is mentioned as a deaconess in this passage and that she has helped Paul in many other ways. She carries the letter, which means that uh, she is responsible for it, but she's also probably going to read it and she's going to have to explain it. This is what N.T. Wright says. The letter bearer would normally be the one who read out the letter to the recipients and explained its contents. So if they had questions, she would have to answer. And so what egalitarians would say is that Paul is sharing his apostolic leadership with her. 
So these are three examples. Now, let me just quote John Stackhouse again. I just like how kind of grumpy he is. Let me make this point as clearly as I can. If there's one divine teaching, which is permanent patriarchy, then we'd expect this simple rule to be applied everywhere and always by the apostles. But if the teaching were culturally accommodative and not universal, we might see exceptions even in the early church. We would see anomalies that don't make sense unless they are indeed blessed hints of what could be and will eventually be in the full present kingdom of God. So we see these examples uh, littered throughout the Bible, and I've only given us three. Finally, the life and the teaching of or reasons uh, why uh, people are egalitarian from the Bible. The life and teaching of Jesus opened the door for women in leadership. So I'm preparing the next series that we're doing is the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so I'm, I'm starting to prepare for that series alongside what we're doing here. And one of the features of the Gospel of Luke that I keep coming back to as I read different people and as I just read the text over and over is that Jesus, it highlights how Jesus lifts women up unbelievably. You can't basically turn a page without Jesus seeing Jesus lift a woman out of the place that she would normally be in that time and that place and highlight her in amazing ways. Let me just give you two examples, one from the Gospel of Luke and one from the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 10, Mary is invited to sit at the Lord's feet, which is the place of a disciple. You know, rabbis, which Jesus would be categorized as, they wouldn't even be seen with their wives in public. And Jesus is telling this woman to come sit at his feet, to come learn from him. And it's that famous passage where Martha says to Jesus, or to Mary, hey Mary, come on, get back in the kitchen. Help me out, which would be typical for what women were doing at that time. And what does Jesus say? Oh, she's chosen the better thing. Come sit at my feet, be my disciple. And some egalitarians would say that he's training her up then to take this good news and to teach other people. John 4 is another great example. So it's the story of the woman at the well. So Jesus meets this woman. They have a, quite a theological discussion. And one of the things uh, that's notable about the Gospel of John is that Jesus makes all these I am statements. Right? I am the bread. I am the gate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The first one that he makes, the first time he reveals himself as God is to this woman. He says, I am to her. He gives her the divine name, and she takes that name. And she goes, and she, she witnesses to her whole community and brings them back to Jesus. And just after that passage, the disciples return. These 12 disciples that Jesus has handpicked, and they're just like clumsy and foolish, all men. And it says, uh, many theologians have noted that basically what Jesus is doing is that he's highlighting this woman as the bearer of the good news and the true disciple amongst the disciple. Regardless of which side you're on, Jesus lifts women up and calls them the disciple. Interestingly, as, again, as I'm re- preparing for this series in Luke, one of the things that Jesus does is he often crafts his stories to both men and to women. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but especially when he's teaching in parables, sometimes there's two together and you're like, why are there two? They're basically saying exactly the same thing. A lot of theologians would say because he's speaking to men and then he's speaking to women. Again, astounding. We think nothing of this. But absolutely astounding that he would take women into consideration in his teaching to lift them up. But to me, the most important part is that when Jesus has the, the most important message to give, the the most important thing that he has to say, the most honored time of leadership in his life, which is entrusting people with the good news of the resurrection, who does he give it to? It's women. It's women who stand in the place, the prime place of honor, and in that society it totally would be a place of honor as the prime witnesses to the resurrection. And again, we need to understand the context there. Women couldn't even um, come into court and witness, but Jesus says, I give this witness to you. 
that I am alive. N.T. Wright says this, all Christian ministry, all of it, what we're doing today, all Christian ministry throughout history flows from the announcement that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is now the Lord of the world. And Jesus entrusted that news to women. Unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable in this context. And astute theologians have noticed that there's a switch that happens at the resurrection, that the women come as silent, not able to speak, scared. But when they come and they meet the angel and they receive the good news, they run with joy. That they, there's a switch that happens, that they become empowered when they are given this good news, that they can come and take this message to the other disciple and witness to both men and women. And the resurrection changes absolutely everything. So this is from Jesus' life. Now, some of you here who lean more egalitarian, um, you may just be thinking at this point in time, Thank goodness, finally, I hear a sermon here that I'm like, I can be fully behind. And of course, we don't do clapping or like amens here. Um, the best we're going to do is like a Christian moo, you know, where it's like, mmm. I don't even know if I got any of those. So I don't know if, if maybe we can get a real egalitarian up here next time. But here's what you may be thinking. Okay, great. I like it. All this evidence is fantastic. You know what I really wish, though? Why didn't Jesus just like... Why didn't you just gather everybody around at one point in time and be like, look, everybody just get in here, okay? I just want to make one thing really clear. A few of you are going to write biographies about me. Why don't, why don't you just uh, please include this? I want to say very clearly that women can lead just like men. Patriarchy is over, and I want to say both men and women lead in egalitarian ways. Thank you. Make sure that you write that down. And if you're complementarian here, you probably might say the same thing. You know, all of this is great and it's nice. And actually, I want women to lead. I have no problem with them being disciples, full disciples of Jesus. It just seems like this one role that after it's, it's limited and, and, and women can't serve there. So I just, you know, it would be so helpful if Jesus, you know, when he was around, he's like, look, everybody just take a knee, gather around. Um, I've been raising women up and you've seen them doing crazy things that you haven't seen them doing before. But I just want to be really clear. Male headship's still a thing. And uh, even though we raise women to the highest standing we can, this is God's plan for the church. Why didn't Jesus just do that? I don't know if you thought about it, but that's what I've been thinking about this week. Would have made it a lot easier for my job. And here's the conclusion that I've come to, is that maybe he's not on our side. Maybe he's not on your side, whatever it is. It's unbelievably easy for any of us, regardless of the side that we're on, to make Jesus someone who likes what we likes, someone who hates what we hate, someone who agrees with what we agree with, someone who subscribes to the same things that we do, you know? Someone who loves the Oilers and hates the Leafs. Well, that's, that's true. Jesus obviously does that, right? It's just like that we are so, it's so easy for us to put God on our side and in our camp. But that's not who Jesus is. At least that's not the way he's represented to us. He's not your revolutionary. The things that you're most excited about and the things that I often go, most get excited about actually seem to be not the things that Jesus is most excited about. Listen to what Paul writes in another verse in 1 Timothy. He says, this is who Jesus is. He's the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom the honor and glory be forever and ever. Amen. That's who Jesus is. He is our ruling and reigning king. And I think it's so easy for us to drag him into our camps. To make him somebody that looks like us, hates the same things we do, believes the same things we do, and is on our side. 
but that's not who Jesus is. And, and I think this is one that we just wish he would speak clearly on, and for whatever reason, he doesn't. But there are things that he does speak clearly on. Maybe the thing that he's most clear on is the invitation to every single one of us. He says, if you want to come after me, and there's this hand out to you, regardless of who you are, which side you're on, he says, you want to take after me, you want to follow after me, then pick up your cross. Learn to die and follow me. Come and follow me. Daily, take up your cross and follow me. And that invitation is very clear and open to every single one of us. And that leads me just to my last point. Last week I said that submission, this, this emphasis on submission, is an, a gift that the complementarians give to us. That sometimes we want to walk around, but it's right in the center of their theology. But I think, well, what about egalitarians? And I think one of the gifts of egalitarians to the world is this focus on the resurrection. That the resurrection truly does change everything. See, the invitation of Jesus to die is only good news if there's an invitation to rise. To come to new life once again. And again, at the heart of a good egalitarian theology is this focus that the resurrection is key and it is important and it has changed everything, even the way that men and women relate to one another. Now, you don't have to agree with that last part. You, you don't have to, and that's totally fine. But do you see that the resurrection has changed the history of the world? I think most Christians would say, of course I do. You know, Paul says, if, if Christ is not raised, we're to be pitied above everybody else. And I totally and fundamentally agree with that. But then I ask you, is that true of your life? Do you, does your life speak in a way that would be pitied if Jesus has truly not been resurrected from the dead? Is the resurrection the key moment of history, but is, also the key, is it the key moment of your history? Is the resurrection something that you allow to continually reshape you to the core? And again, most of us would probably say yes. But then I would say to you, like, why are you then so afraid of the areas of your life where you're dying? Where your life seems to be headed down and not up? Why are you so angry at God in the areas where he hasn't provided for you in the ways that you've wanted? In the places where life is not going as you hoped? Why are you thinking God's absent when your life is not smooth? Maybe it's because you're dying and no hope for this resurrection life. But if Jesus is not is written or is risen, sorry, then we should not um, we should not lose hope. If Jesus isn't risen, then we should be all pursuing our best lives now. Absolutely. But if he is, if he is truly risen, then he's reigning and ruling. And that means in the places where we experience not life but death, they are actually invitations from a Jesus who is resurrected, who comes to us with nail-pierced hands and says, come, come with me. This is the way that I will change you into new humans who look like me. It's through the pattern of dying and rising. And so if he's reigning and ruling, maybe he's not so interested in just pulling you up to the heavens, to making your life smooth and easy, but in rather he's, he's inviting you to die and to rise so that you can become a new human, that we might become people who are truly recapturing this vision from Genesis 1, people that reflect our God, because we're being remade through the process of dying and rising. The resurrection has changed everything. Do you believe it? Let's pray to close. Father, we thank you for this invitation. Um, it is a very bizarre one in our culture to die and to rise. Um, regardless of where we stand on the spectrum of belief about gender and leadership, I pray that you would invite us 
to this pattern of, well, first to seeing that the resurrection truly does change everything and that that would affect our lives in a deep way. And then in the places where we are dying, where you are calling us downward, where our, our lives are not being smooth, they are not going in the ways that we'd hoped or dreamed or planned, that we would, instead of seeing your absence, that we would see your hand inviting us to, to throw off the ways that we are not human. Learn to become like you, the true human being, through a pattern of dying and rising. So as we take communion, as we worship together, as we sing, as we fellowship, may you draw us closer into this pattern. May your presence be with us, leading and guiding us, and may you make us a church of people who look like the new human, like Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.